As we open God's word to hear it read and proclaimed, I invite you to join your hearts with mine as we ask the Holy Spirit to open us up to it. So let us pray together. Lord, as we continue to prepare ourselves to meet your son in the manger once more, we ask you to open our ears, soften our hearts, and shine your light into our spirits so that we might hear your voice guiding us and preparing the way. Help us, help us to lift up our gates so that the King of glory might come in. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter, verses 1 through 11 and verse 16. It is one of the passages of the Old Testament that lift up the Davidic line that Jesus will follow into. So listen now for the word of God to the church. Now, when the king was settled in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, see now I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from a pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more, and evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." Our New Testament lesson this morning comes, as it did last Sunday, from the first chapter of Luke, this time from the 26th through the 38th verses. So listen now to the familiar words of what we know as the Annunciation. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, 
of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord, Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When the singer-songwriter Cat Stevens was asked about his famous hit, Moonshadow, he recalled a discovery he made relatively late in his life, he said, I'd lived in cities my whole life, he said, and because there were street lamps, there were always neon lights in the shops everywhere, so you'd never really see anything of nature. And then when I was on holiday in Spain, I went out on the rocks around midnight, and there was a full moon. Suddenly I looked down and discovered there he was, my moon shadow. He calls the song, inspired by that moment, the optimist's anthem. The lyrics speak about finding hope even in the darkest places, silver linings around even the darkest storm clouds. If I ever lose my hands, lose my plow, lose my land, oh, if I ever lose my hands, well, I won't have to work no more. And if I ever lose my eyes, if my colors all run dry, yes, if I ever lose my eyes, well, I won't have to cry no more. Yes, I'm being followed by a moon shadow, Moon shadow, moon shadow, leaping and hopping on a moon shadow, moon shadow, moon shadow. And later in the bridge of the song, Stevens hints at faith, alluding to the divine protection of a higher power. Did it take long to find me? I ask the faithful light. Yeah, did it take long to find me? And are you going to stay the night? 
It's a question remarkably similar to the one cried out by the psalmist who asked, how long? The poets of Israel who weathered, who wondered aloud whether the protective wing of God would find them and stay with them and shelter them through the night. Here on the final Sunday of Advent, as the dawn of the light that shines in the darkness draws nearer and nearer, Cat Stevens' metaphor captures the spirit of the season as well as any that I can imagine. The primary voice of Advent, I would say, is the prophet's voice. The Messiah will soon have his say, as will the apostles and the martyrs and the early believers of the New Testament. But here and now, we are still very much in the world of those who speak of future hopes, not of what is, but of what will be someday. Even the voice in the wilderness who cries out at the beginning of the gospel, John the Baptist, even John seems to have a lot more in common with Jeremiah than he does with James or John. Yes, the prophets speak of light, but the dawn of which they speak has not yet broken. The light that they see is indirect, reflected light, and the shadows they see of the future are dimmer and hazier than direct revelations. What they can see are but moon shadows, images leaping and hopping through the darkness in the dreams of those who wait for the dawn. If Advent is the optimist's season, as I believe that it is, then moon shadow is one of Advent's anthems. I think that was the kind of light that found Mary when the angel came to visit her. Greetings, favored one, Gabriel says. The Lord is with you. This annunciation, as we have come to call it, is clearly a moment of power and revelation, but it was also hazy and uncertain. And we know that because, as Luke says, Mary was much perplexed by these words. She pondered what kind of greeting this really might be. In other words, Mary was still pretty much in the dark. The most ominous phrase in this passage, and I think the one that has been pondered the most through Christian history, is the answer that the angel gives to Mary's very legitimate and understandable follow-up question about how she would be conceiving a son when the normal rules of conception clearly did not apply to her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Gabriel says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It was, as best, a moonshadow of an answer, one that must have leapt and hopped around in Mary's imagination in a hazy mixture of light and dark, faith and fear. What could the angel have meant? What does it mean to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit? So since Advent is the realm of the Hebrew prophets, let's start with the Old Testament potential meanings. The Hebrew word tzel, which we translate as shadow, can typically mean two different things. The first meaning, the most common one, 
casts a shadow as something fleeting or transitory, something that does not last. The clearest hints come from the book of Job, which is hardly the place one would look if one is seeking refuge from the storms of life. Job's friend Bildad, who, let's just be honest, does a terrible job of cheering Job up, notes that we human beings, and I'm quoting here, are but of yesterday. We know nothing, for our days on earth are but a shadow. And as his suffering deepens and mounts, Job later concedes this point and seems to channel the prophet Isaiah when he omits aloud that every mortal born of woman, few of days and full of trouble, comes up like a flower and withers, flees like a shadow, and does not last. Now, the implication in Job is not just that a shadow is transitory and fleeting, it also observes that a shadow is perpetually underneath. It is at all times subject to something or someone greater, always less than something else in kind of a vulnerable, even withering way. Now, I'll admit up front that it is an unlikely place to find a sermon illustration, but I'm going to do it anyway. The movie Fred Claus, bear with me, uh, comes to mind. So without getting too deep into the plot, suffice it to say that a few key characters in that movie struggle with the pain of living in the shadow of someone else. Have you ever seen a tree that grows in the shadow of another tree, one of these characters asks. It's all puny and misshapen because it's bending and twisting, trying so desperately to get some sunlight. Like Job, these movie characters begin to feel a deep resentment about living in the shadow of a greater figure leading them to the conclusion that until somebody comes along and cuts down that big tree, that that little tree is never going to get any light. But living in the shadows can mean something even darker than resentment. In the 23rd Psalm, the Hebrew word for shadow is combined with the Hebrew word for death to form a unique compound word that is used frequently by both the prophets and the psalmist, the literal rending for that compound word is the death shadow. Or as we have come to think about it in the context of the most familiar line to us, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will be overshadowed, it is not difficult to imagine that these kinds of Old Testament images may well have come to her mind. As she sat in the pale half-light before dawn, as she pondered the mysteries in her heart, a young teenager must have felt some measure of fear, some concern that she was about to be overwhelmed by something way too big for her. That whatever this thing was that was coming, it might just be too much. As the angel said, an ominous shadow 
was about to loom over her life. Now, what Mary could not have understood fully in her moment was that a great pivot was beginning in the cosmos right then and right there, because something happens to the shadows when the story of the New Testament begins. And the angel Gabriel is the first to herald this change when he proclaims that Mary will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we could say, begins with a shadow, even in the shadows. And even now, even before his birth, he is already beginning to change what those shadows represent. Now, if you were listening closely earlier, you will remember that I said there was not one, but two primary meanings of shadow in the Old Testament. And the first, as we have seen, is dominated primarily by fear. It casts shadows as places of weakness and worthlessness, situations that can lead to resentment or even death. But there are other shadows in the Hebrew Scriptures, ones that bear more light than darkness. And the prophets could see them, even if others could not. For example, even though Hosea uses painfully cruel images to describe what God was planning to do to a faithless Israel, the end of his prophecy is bathed in light. In the end, God promises that the people of Israel, and I quote here, shall again live beneath my shadow, They shall flourish as a garden. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fragrance shall be like the wine of Lebanon. And the prophet Isaiah sees a similar vision. Even in the suffering of the Hebrew people, Isaiah proclaims that God has always, and I'm quoting here, hidden them in the shadow of his hand. However, nowhere is this kind of shadow more clearly defined than in the hopeful words of Psalm 17. There, a faithful poet is crying out to God from the darkness of difficulty. They are in pain, and they need it to stop. So with rock-solid faith, they penned these words, I call upon you, For you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Guard me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings." That is the image that the gospel claims of shadows. The hope of Christ reaches down into the shadows and reaches past them to reclaim those shadows for the purposes of God. This shadow is a place where everyone would want to be, hidden in the safety and the shadow of God's wings. As it turns out, the safety and security and blessing of that shadow had been there all along. Psalm 36, 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, In you, O God, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the destroying storms pass by. 
Psalm 63, 7, for you have been my help, O Lord, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Even in the darkness before the dawn, the reflection of this kind of light casts a hopeful shadow to Advent people. Yes, Mary was probably fearful. Yes, she was clearly perplexed and bewildered and scared and overwhelmed with what seemed to be happening to her. But there was something in the promise that strengthened her as well. Somehow, Mary sensed that whatever may come, she would be sheltered enough, favored enough, strengthened enough. And the glimpse of a greater light enabled her to say, in spite of her confusion and fear, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. So as it turns out, overshadowing is something that happens where holiness lives. In Exodus, Scripture says that the bronze box of the Ark of the Covenant that we heard about from 2 Samuel 7 this morning, that bronze box as it was constructed was believed to be the place where the presence of God abode, where God sat on the mercy seat of the universe, and that box was overshadowed by sculpted wings of cherubim. In the Gospels, as Peter, James, and John watched the transfiguration of Jesus, a holy cloud overshadowed them as a heavenly voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so it was for Mary, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, she too was overshadowed because she was a place where holiness would live. May it be true of us as well. As Advent people, we still seek the dawn in so many ways. We are not free from all sin, far from it. We are not free from all pain. We are not free from strife or disagreement or sickness or death. But with the prophets of old, we still look to the horizon, and we do dream of the time when the sun will rise and the shadows of fear and death will all be transformed into places of refuge, safety, and life, places where holiness lives. So even if you feel darkness around you, I pray that you will somehow be given the gift of seeing that it is already there, your moon shadow. And I also pray that in the peace of Christmas, that the faithful light will find you and convince you once more that whenever you call, your God will answer, that you too are the apple of God's eye and that you too will be hidden safe in the shadow of God's wings. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.